It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the one, the only, David Staunton. Yay! Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Dave, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Become Your Own Superhero. What a great title. Well, you kind of sounded a bit like Kermit the Frog with your yay. And uh, Kermit's a bit of a hero uh, to a few people in those circles. But that's not the reason why you're on the show, because you sound a bit like Kermit. I can assure you that. I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do this justice, but we'll have a crack at it, David. And David Storn is, in my opinion, in the circles of the Professional Speakers Association, probably one of the most generous people I've ever met. And I mean that with regards to everything that he does, the way he engages, the way he shares his knowledge, a veteran of the game, an award-winning speaker, a self-made multi-millionaire entrepreneur, uh, hospitality, mining, scientist background, father, weight loss guru, amazing individual, and I don't even think I've really scratched the surface. And I think you're an author as well, contributing author on best-selling books. Out they go. Yeah, that's pretty right. Um, sometimes when I'm reading out the bio at conferences, they say all the different things that I've done, and then pretty much at the end, I just go, "Yes, can't can't hold a job, really." You know, done this, tried that, had a go at this, had a go at that, and that's my favourite thing. I just love interesting new things and solving problems. So, hence all those different jobs, and, and you you left out um eight years running a plastic surgeons group as well, which is another new special sideline. Well, that's another, it's a slice above the rest. I've attended now 40 plastic surgeons conferences. I keep saying to them, if I, if I keep on turning up and get enough CPD points, when can I have a go at it? But uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is there maybe a cadaver or something you could practice, practice on? No, 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 no practice for me. I'm just um, more interested in the, in the customer service part of it or the patient experience part of it and the marketing part of it. So, but I love it. So, cool. Well, they're not people I've ever had any or done any business with. Um, I, I, actually, that's not true. I, got, I was at the receiving end of some snoring surgery I got about 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. from an, it was an ear, ear, nose, and throat surgeon who removed the uvula, which is the yeah. punching bag in the back of the throat, and also lays it out the, uh, the back of my throat as well. Mm-hmm. And... It was 10 days of the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced in my life. And I likened the experience 
at one point to the feeling you might get if you gave a lightning bolt a blowjob, which is a bit crass, I realise, but I couldn't really think of another way to describe it. Yes, um, there's a bit of a joke amongst specialists, all different types of specialists, that, you know, the, the poor patient goes there and goes, will I feel any pain? And, you know, will there, will there be much pain? And he goes, well, I won't feel any at all. So, you know, because <laughs> the specialists just not that worried about that bit. They just want to make sure they do it right. And the pain part, or they can manage it now with painkillers. So anyway, that's an, another area of, of interest of mine. So weddings, plastic surgery, speaking, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and certainly plastic surgery led me on to bariatric surgery, which led me on to weight loss surgery. And so I'm interested in that as a topic as well. Well, why don't we get straight into this? Because I, I was very pleased to hear that you were a former fatty. And I say that with the greatest amount of love, love and respect. Um, because I think your story needs to be shared because it's very inspirational. So can you take us back to the genesis of the weight problem and then how you went about it? Sure. So at school, I didn't have much confidence. And uh, so I just was always really nice to the ladies at, the, at that time, the tuck shop, which is where they kept all the food. And so instead of uh, being either on the sports field or playing with all the other kids, I just used to go and talk to all the ladies at the tuck shop. And I'd spend hours and hours and hours there just buying whatever they had. So, And at that time, it was, uh, I don't know, Big M chocolate milks and uh, donuts and lollies and all the stuff that we no longer have in sort of uh, canteens at schools anymore. Um, that's what I. That's what happened, and the weight just sort of stacked on and stacked on and stacked on, and all of the uh, physical teachers and things pretty much just bullied you. And as a result of which, uh, there's that wicked cycle of feeling unhappy, eating, and then feeling unhappy about eating. And so I just got hooked on that and that. And the, whenever I was stressed, I ate, and whenever I was sort of sad and depressed, I ate, and I just flip flopped between those two sort of emotions quite a lot. So. That's what happened. And in between, I just worked really, really hard. And the reward for everything was always food. Well, there's two things there. I mean, that story sounds like that really humorous scene in, in Austin Powers when Fat Bastard, the, I don't know if you remember the Scottish character, where you know, he talks about that vicious cycle of eating because he's unhappy and he's unhappy because he eats, right? But it's, yeah. it's in, the, in that humor, it's really true. But how big were you at your heaviest? Dave? Um, about 350 pounds, which was probably about 160 kilos. So that was pretty big and pretty round. Um, and I got up to that number and then through hard work and going to the um, high intensity aerobics three times a day, I slid down to about 250 pounds. So I dropped about 45 kilos. And then I bought a wedding reception center and in fact, three of them. And after working every day, I just go to the cool room and eat something. And because our, our job was to make absolutely spectacularly beautiful food, I just overate and overate and I went back to what I had been before. And so finally I had a lap band done, a lap band surgery where they put a band around your stomach and I got used to eating much, much smaller portions. And I've been like that now for 10 or 12 years. Fantastic. And look, it's a, it's a truly inspiring story because if, you know, having gone through a weight loss journey of my own, I lost... 60 pounds and you're talking about incredible amounts of weight that put such tremendous stress on the just on the joints but on the on your heart and on your vital organs and you know just getting around like that what's that feeling like when you realize that you are 
a huge man and just burdened by all this weight. What What's going through your mind at that point? Uh, all the um, embarrassments and discomforts of things like couldn't fit in the couldn't fit in an airline seat, for example. It would literally be trying to put your ass in a shoebox. It was just, you know, an embarrassment. And then I'd be praying that, you know, no one would be walking down the aisle that's going to sit next to me because I already had half that seat claimed. Um, so those sorts of things, um, unable to find clothing. I was working in the mining industry and other industries and you'd go out there and they'd go, oh, this is the size of the manhole. You can't fit in it. This is the size of the... Um, this is the size of the gear, you know, you, here's, the, here's the stuff that you have to wear, the protective clothing, and, of course, you know, it wraps around half of you, not the whole of you. So, yeah, there was a lot of embarrassments and lots of limitations and things, and that was the biggest relief was um, losing all of that from losing the weight, which was good. Um, uh, yes, I, I, there's also, I had really, really sore knees, and I'm amazed now that I meet lots of people who are very large and have very sore knees and sore joints. And they go, oh, no, my knee pain can't possibly be due due to any of this excess weight that I'm carrying. <laughs> and I'm like, going, well, just come over here and let me stand on your toe for a moment and sort of feel what an extra 50 or 100 pounds feels like as I crush your toe into the ground. And you go, that's what's going on with the, with the joints in your knees. So, you know, and lo and behold, they lose some weight and then the knee pain magically disappears. So all those arthroscopes and knee problems, Start with the cause, not with the with the problem. Did Did you notice, Dave, that people treated you differently just out in general and out in public when you were as big as you were? Oh, yeah, of course. You get ridiculed, and you get you know hear all sorts of interesting comments and things. And again, that that, that feeds that loop of you know unhappiness and depression and things. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, and I suppose now that you've you've gone through this journey and done it twice, which is remarkable you must have inspired other people that you've spoken to about this yeah a lot of you can't you can't wander up to fat people and go you know what you need to lose weight um generally speaking that they don't like that because they've been told that by their parents they've been nagged by their mum their doctor their pe teacher whoever it happens to be um but occasionally they'll come to me and they go how did you does that really work? How did you do it? And from those sort of patient success stories or those sort of success stories, I've, I've motivated a whole bunch of people. I didn't go to them. They came to me. And, uh, yeah, there's probably five or six that I know of that were, have lost hundreds of pounds. And that's, that's what this whole speaking, you know, influencing change career is, is all about, in my opinion. I think that, that opportunity to have a platform to be able to share your story and allow people to come to you and lead by example rather than you know, waggling that, that finger at people, you know, something that I've certainly noticed and had to learn over the last few years. Yeah, I don't think you can tell people what to do. You can invite them what to do. You can also explain to them how I did it, and some people are inspired by how I did it rather than what you should do. People telling other people what to do, you need to do this, that, and the other, you need to, you have to, you should, sort of dominating them, and that's not a very successful model. And I hear it from some speakers from the stage. What you have to do is, what you need to do, you must, you've got to. And I go, yeah, don't use that language. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's. I think they can get a bit carried away at times. And, you know, like this is one of the things that I've – tried to make my own mantra is just to lead by example and and because like you i've experienced 
when I was bigger, I noticed the dramatic change in how people responded to me day to day, which wasn't dramatic initially, but I noticed that the more, like the healthier I got, I'm not, I'm not going to say the slimmer, but the health, cause I, I was getting leaner, but the healthier I got, the better people responded to me, seemingly the better quality individual I attracted into my life, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm not saying that like fat people are bad people or, you know, from that angle, it's just about that positive feedback loop, which is the opposite of what you were going through when you were at your largest, you know, and I find that really, really empowering. And, and I love sharing my before and after photos with people. I really do. Um, Cause Hey, here's, you can do it too if you want. The only issue we have with them um, losing stacks and stacks of weight is the excess skin issue. The later you do it and the more you lose your skin laxity. Um, and so that's what I do with a lot of the plastic surgery stuff. We do body lift and excess skin reduction. And so there's things like tummy tucks and, and breast reductions and all sorts of other interesting things for, for that particular thing. Because pretty much uh, skin, when you stretch it, doesn't always go back to what it was. Um, and you can exercise it and exercise it and exercise it and, and it won't happen. Um, which was interesting, and and I could never understand it. It was basically to do with um, the elastin in the skin, and as you get older, it becomes less and less elastic. It's like um, when you look in the mirror, uh, it does it after you've been sleeping, the wrinkle comes back out, and then one day it just doesn't come back out. The wrinkle sort of stuck there, <laughs> um, and that's one way to describe it. And similarly, um, it's been interesting with with the with the stretched skin is that um, it's like your favorite pair of underpants. The elastic goes great, goes great, goes great, and then one day just nothing happens. And you go, oh, what happened? And that's what happens. That's how elastin works in the skin. One day you had it, next day you didn't. So it's you can you can put on the weight, but we deal a lot with sometimes with young people and middle-aged people who have just skin excess skin now. So anyway, that's something interesting. Yeah, it is. Just allow me one second, Dave. I'm just going to – the perils – the perils of um, recording at on dusk uh, <laughs> are now realised. That's better. Um, I'm filming from a 38-storey apartment, and the sun sets beautifully in the in the distance. But uh, trying to time it with <laughs> podcast. Um, this part of this That's whole on. Sorry, you're looking very. Oh, you're looking very orange now. It's yeah, very, yeah. Very, very, very good look. I'm like, is it Veruca Salt in yes. uh, Charling the Chocolate Factory, except uh, yeah. she was purple? And and this is the whole fun of this new online world that we're living in, Dave. And I, one of the things I really like about you is your adaptability and how quickly you've been able to pivot and now become this online expert. And, and you know, it's something that normally it's only attributed to someone who's who's – you know, young and, you know, uh, you know, the youth of, of today are the ones that are able to, to adapt, but it's the, it's people like you that are leading the charge with this kind of stuff. What, what's been the biggest learning for you in the last two months with regards to what you do for work and how you've had to adapt? Um, it's exactly that. We've all gone to virtual and early on it was um, just collecting and, and sharing the love with the resources. And the more you give to other people, the more they give back and we were sharing what's working. Um, there's been a fabulous group on Facebook called Remote, Remote um, Speaking and someone put me onto that really early and those guys have just shared and shared and shared of all the gadgets and the technology and everybody's in the same boat. We've all had to learn how to do this, how to get all the pieces of software and hardware to work together 
to deliver fantastic online presentations. So lots of lessons and uh, I don't mind sharing it. And I found blogging has been a real boon to me since about November last year. I just started to, ex instead of telling people stuff and sharing it verbally, I just wrote about it and shared it online. And it's just pulled, you know, thousands of people that come to the pages and the websites to share. And I found it really useful. And then if it changes, I can update it and keep going. So it's a terrific way to put my content out. Yeah. What's the, like for your amateur Zoom person that's, that's wanting to just conduct a reasonable meeting or, you know, and they don't have a lot of experience, what are a couple of just tips that, you've, that you can recommend that would be really helpful? Um, one of my favorite ones, um, I was on a couple of Zoom meetings this morning, and this is what's called a lens cloth. And did you know that if you actually <laughs> clean this thing here, as opposed to spitting on your iPad or your phone or whatever you're using, it's much, much clearer. I'm, I'm like amazed. And, and I kind of was secret messaging a few people today that looked like they had vomited on their lens. It was just like so bad. It was, it was unbelievable. And then we've got simple things like if you can, you know, set it up so that it's not the chin view or the eye view or the nose view or the ear hole view. <laughs> Just if you can, you know, give me, give me a bit of a hint as to look roughly at what you're doing is helpful. Um, I've got a little sticker on mine here, which is a bit of a reminder that, um, you know, when we're thinking, sometimes if you can smile, that's a nice thing too. Um, and if the sound is quite good, that's helpful. Um, and then if you've got some lighting, you know, you can adjust the lighting and do all sorts of things. So, just the simple ones, which is the sound, the lighting, the camera lens, and and a clean lens, because it's how fuzzy do you look, how do you sound, and um, and how do you, and how good is the the camera position, and that's probably going to give you a pretty reasonable result. This is a webcam that I'm using. Um, you can use the laptop camera, can use different cameras, and I can change from camera to camera using the connections in Zoom. So you know, I have a taller camera up here which is this one. Hello. I can stand up and talk. Um, sorry, I'll put that back to the other one. Um, and I've got one over there on the side. And over there. And so you can see different qualities and different ways of doing it. So anyway. Now, just for, for the record, you'd have to have a, uh, a premium account to be able to do the camera switch or is it available on the, on the freemium? I think it's free. Um, they've been changing it all the time on different things, but that's pretty much free. You get to select, um, you, you plug in a bunch of microphones and a bunch of cameras, you control different things. Okay. Um, there's, you can even get downloadable camera controllers that'll do things such as picture in picture. There's a, a whole range of different tools. Um, I have using here the, um, let me see, the uh, virtual background because uh, one of the, downsides with the virtual background is, uh, is it there you see it's i'm a bit fuzzy around the ear and also you lose my fingers yeah so there's been a bit of a pushback now against virtual backgrounds and although this isn't as great as it could be you can curate a better background and that's i've got one of those over in the other room there so you can yeah. do that yeah, well, I, uh, I mean, in case in point before, right, with the, I could see that I was disappearing like Marty McFly in Back to the Future yeah. 2, right? And I've got a, um, about five square metres of Lincraft green behind me, mm -hmm. uh, which has been pretty reliable, I've got to admit. And just... I've, I've got one over in the back room over there. It's another one. So, there you go. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, like, and, and just it's that little wee notch of professionalism that you're adding and just 
creating an environment where your message, if you are communicating, whether it be doing a keynote or whatever kind of talk, you're not, you don't want to detract from what you're saying. You don't, you don't want to, you want that message to go from there to there without any breakdown. And I think that's the whole, the whole point of this being a speaker and then the extra layer of complexity given the virtual world and something you've adapted beautifully well. So uh, I, we had back in 2000, um, I think it was 2011 that I helped organize that I ran the convention for the Speakers Association and we brought over the world's expert in virtual presenting, a guy called Roger Corville. And he went on and on and on and on about it. Um, and that was nine years ago. And most people did nothing about it, except that um, come, what was it, two months ago, I suddenly remembered that we knew Roger, who, you know, was the expert on virtual presentation skills. And then I worked out who they were in Australia and everywhere else. And then I just put up a blog on that and said, here you go, guys. Here's my best curated efforts. And other people said, oh, you forgot me. And what about him? And what about that? And I just keep collating the best resources and go, here you go. And that's sort of, I found my, my niche as being a bit of a maven of who do you know? What do you need to know? You know, who would you like to be introduced to? And that's been really helpful to a whole lot of people. And they've come back to me. And they're mostly been pretty good. They haven't sort of been uh, rude and said, you know, how dare you leave me out or whatever, because at the bottom of them all, it's like, this is a work in progress. This is my best efforts. If you've got any other ideas, call me. And they do. Um, yeah. Work. And, uh, but I think, like, you're coming from such a great place, David. And, and last year when when I had a chance to meet you for the first time and, and the time that we've, we've seen each other uh, throughout the course of that relationship, you've had an impact on me that you probably won't realize in referring a bunch of speakers and whether they be local or overseas. And I've been able to reach out and connect with some of them. And those, those impacts of those impact, that impact on my life rather has then changed trajectory and changed course for the better. And so you know, I'm really grateful, and I think that seems to be your superpower. You are really great at connecting uh, all of these these beautiful things together and giving people their their own empowerment. But I want to explore how you even ended up in this place. Where did it all start for Dave Staunton? Yeah, I've I've changed careers multiple times. So I thought I was at, at school. I absolutely blitzed um, business in year ten. Uh, and I loved it. I was passionate, passionate, passionate about business, and I loved all the business topics and being in business and everything to do with business. And at my school, they said, anybody that had any brains or any high scores whatsoever, you guys all have to go and do science. So all of a sudden, I got ripped out of business, which is what I loved, and got put into physics, chemistry, biology, and a whole maths and a whole lot of science subjects, and did that for a while. And then I went and studied science at, at uni, and I ended up in a science degree. And all through science, I couldn't find any business or any money in it at all except for geology. So I ended up finding the gold mines and the oil, and I ended up studying oil geology because that's the business aspect of it. And so I went out to a mine one day, and everything was a disaster. Everything was broken down. They'd shut down the entire show. And I was the junior. I was there as the apprentice for the school holidays. And so I picked up the phone, rang three other mines, borrowed all the equipment that was broken from other people's minds and by the next morning we were running again and they came to me and they said how dare you think that you're running this place but I go no no this was just 30 guys running a western mining mine and we were pulling out 30 million dollars worth of gold and uh, I got to run the 12-hour shift on my own as the junior apprentice geologist but 
So I got I got fascinated by this business thing. So I ended up leaving geology and I went and bought a derelict rundown restaurant. And uh, it didn't go all that well because uh, I knew absolutely nothing about running a restaurant or managing staff and people. And uh, But I was really good at uh, rocks. So um, in that first year, I made a lot of sales. I sold my car. I sold my house. I sold my furniture. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I met this guy and he said, you know, I said, oh, look, all the staff I hire, they're idiots. They all do the wrong thing. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're doing it wrong. He said, who hired the staff? And I said, well, me. And he said, and what systems and processes do you have? And I go, oh, we don't have any of that. And it was interesting because that was an absolutely pivotal point for me to go back and go, okay, run your business with systems and people and get the best out of them. And then from there, I just grew an enormous big wedding reception centre and then a second one and a third one and a fourth one. And I got into the wedding industry. And then in 2001, I got sick of weddings after about 15 years and about 2,000 weddings. And I sold them off and retired a multi-millionaire. And then other people had business problems and I just went and just started to solve them. And I was just fascinated by how with just a few tweaks, you can significantly increase and improve lots of businesses. So I just went from one to the other and then into replication. And I've been doing that a lot. So that's how I got into it. And uh, now that's just what I do, solve business problems. and Mostly it's to do with, you know, the way that you're doing it's usually not working and you need some other resources. And that other resource might be a book or it might be a person. And so now I just, I talk to people and I try and work out of the 5,000 business books that I've got, which is the one that would help them the best. And of the thousands of people that I know, which introduction would probably help them the best. And I usually introduce people for a purpose. No, you can't ring people up and go, you know, do you want to buy Amway from me? But you can certainly go and They'll always listen to you. Anybody that becomes unemployed, I, I recommend that they speak to a couple of people. And I say, these people will not hire you, but they will know the person who will hire you. So that's just giving back. And my mum taught me to do that. She says, just help people out. And I think it was Dale Carnegie that says, if you want to get what you want, help as many people as you can get what they want. And lots of very clever business owners have done that. So that works. Well, you're almost right. I think it might have been Zig Ziglar that made that, that, that created that I quote. Been Zig. And, unless Zig stole it. So, but who, it doesn't matter. It's a bloody great quote and I, and I love it and use it a lot. So that's uh, brilliant. And the thing that sprung to mind, David, what percentage of the businesses that you uh, asked to come and help, what percentage of the business owners are just not into what they're doing? Do you have any idea um, of that number? Yeah, I try, not to, I try and stay away from those business owners. So I, I mostly worked out that um, in a room of 100 business owners, there's about 10 or 20% of them that really want to grow it. And in the end, I talk to everybody, but I work with the ones that are really wanting to grow it. The ones that are sort of comfortable, I'll give them a few ideas. And then there's 10 to 20% of them that just don't want to do anything. And usually they have a life problem, a family problem, a health problem. And, and they and they can't really think about growing it until they do that, and rightfully so. I suppose if your partner's dying of something, if you've got you know some illness, they're not really committed to growing the business. It's, it's so um, I tend to not help them on the business. I try and help them with other things for those people. But the ones that really want to grow the business, they're the ones that I, I work on. So twenty percent, sixty percent, twenty percent is what I tend to find in, in groups of of businesses. Um, are they committed? So that's the passionate bit. And then the other bit that's most interesting is that there's four areas of business and most people are only good at about two of them. Um, they either really love the bit about getting the work, the sales and marketing. Some of them just love the operations, which is just, you know, the, the technician just doing the work. 
other people love the back end stuff, the sort of admin, the finance, the IT, the back of house analysis stuff. Um, and then some people love the the HR, the training, the team building, the selecting, recruiting, and the people stuff. So I call that the good day model. Get, get the work, do the work, admin, finance, and you and your team. And most people I've ever met really love one or two of those. Nobody does the front, the back, the middle, and the people all in one go. So it usually takes two people to make a business run, sometimes a husband and wife, sometimes a CEO and a CFO. And that's what I find. So that's a bit of an, an eye-opener for some people. They have some strengths, and the two things that are stopping them from growing are those other two things. That's what I work on. And what about telling a business owner that, you know what, it's time to just stop this and do something else? Does that ever happen? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done that and I've, I've um, terminated their spouse occasionally. Um, I, I remember going to see one really, really fast-growing business um, and they said, oh, we need some help. And I, I rocked out there and there were two brand-new Ferraris or Ferrari and a Lamborghini at the front. And I said to them, and they said, can you loan us a million dollars? And I go, why is that? And they go, oh, well, we, we've bought $6 million worth of advertising on Channel 9 and we don't have the money to pay for it. Um, and I went, mm, where's your CFO? Where's the finance guy around here? And they go, oh, we don't have one. And it was an example of two entrepreneurs, just wild ideas men, nobody that was grounded, nobody that was the systems guy. There was no money financing systems in that business. And, you know, that's the short recipe for going bankrupt so that's what happens and so some people you're not suited to it they don't like it they're not passionate about it sometimes they inherit it sometimes they're sort of trapped in it and the best thing you can do is go i remember i went and visited um a place a regional place that had a downturn and this this lady had a little like milk bar that sold sandwiches and she said oh i'm really worried the tax department wants to put me in jail and i go why is that and she goes well i owe them 1.5 million dollars <laughs> And I'm going, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> and she, she owed them 1.5 million. And then I said, look, the best thing you can do is, you know, ring somebody who's a specialist in insolvency. And she goes, well, you're not a very good motivational speaker. And I'm going, this is not a selling sandwiches solution. You know, you, can, you cannot sell your way out of this $1.5 million debt to the tax department by selling, you know, the extra sandwich or a can of Coke. My she God. Hadn't, she just hadn't paid it for a long, 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 long time. <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. you got to, like, the numbers are just whirring over my head, just, just imagining this place, how much is turning over a couple of thousand a week, maybe, if it's lucky. Yeah, but, what's, what's the deal? I was, God, that, was, that was my favourite one. And then, then sort of to be, you know, because I was supposed to be the inspirational helper, the tourism department had brought me out to meet this lovely lady, and you know, halfway during the conversation, I go, you know, they're, they're ringing up and threatening to put me in jail, possibly. Apart from your own uh, business, Dave, what's, what's your proudest business turnaround achievement? Oh, there's been a whole stack of them. Um, a friend of mine had one who was lunch trucks and he was awesome on two bits of it, but he was missing a couple of bits. He was missing the people and the sales part of it. He was fantastic on systems and quality. He was just missing a few bits on people and staff. And, that was a miracle turnaround, that one, and from not much profit to 880,000 profit in the first year. So, um, And again, it goes back to the they're really, really good at this and this. They're just missing the other bits. Um, and there's nobody that's really good at everything that I've discovered. I've, it's, there's nobody that's 
awesome. You can't be big picture, small picture, you know, people and numbers at the same time. It's pretty hard to be all of those. Um, what other terms around have I done? Um, there are lots of them that were just in trouble. I go out to do a lot of regional work where they're really in trouble. So where there's a big downturn in the region at the back of Mackay, at the back of Darwin. That's my favourite thing. In the wedding business, um, we had a busy season September to April and then we had a dead as a doornail season where we lost all our money May through August. It was quiet. And I sat there for 10 years working out how to make things busy when they were quiet, how to overcome slumps and particular seasonality. And then when I retired, I went out and helped lots and lots and lots of businesses with seasonality. So places like accommodation, transport, um, businesses that are really busy at certain times and then just quiet. And it was really just improving utilisation. And so I've been fascinated by how do you sell things when they can't sell. That's been a passion of mine for many years. Well, do you have any ideas about the next 12, 18 months in Australia in terms of the economy and what, what you think might happen? Yeah, there's a few people that are predicting the Great Depression, certainly the Great Recession, um, and it really depends whether the government just wants to keep spending money. I saw today that they're ex- thinking of extending the, um, the job keepers, but others are thinking that there'll be a bit of a financial wall come September and October. We've had downturns before. I was in the 87 downturn. That's when I just first bought my business. We were in the 99, 2000, the tech wreck around then. Then we had a little one in 2007. And there's strategies that you can use for tough times. And how's it going to go? It's going to be tough is the answer to that. Um, there's a third of the businesses that it's business as usual, sort of government ones, defence, construction. There's a third that are sort of slightly down at the moment. And then there's a third of the businesses at the moment that are completely wiped out. Uh, travel, tourism, conferences, events, and a whole bunch that, you know, have been completely wiped out. And when we get back into it, it's going to be subdued. There's a lot less business coming from China and we'll see how it goes. So the trick is at the moment, um, get really, really, really good at making the most of everything we've got. It's my favourite thing at the moment. That's what I do in, in turbulent times. Make the most, improve your customer experience and make the most of every single lead and relationship work your database harder do all the basic things of um, working out what's going to be sustainable um, that being said anything you can do to be innovative and creative which is good as well but some people are just unable to do that um, i don't know whether people who own taxis had the ability to turn into uber drivers i certainly know that you know i did the conference 10 years ago for a big video group and they were there going people will always come to the video store to get a video and I'm like going, have you heard of this thing called the internet? And they go, no, 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 that's, that's rubbish. It'll always be videos. And it's sort of, okay. God, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? <laughs> I mean. Especially if you've got five stores and you've gone all in on videos and you just don't see that, the you know, it's possible to pivot. There was a lady that I met and she did brilliantly. She was buying video stores. And what she did was that she worked out it was video and this was a brilliant strategy, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So she bought a video store for practically nothing. And each of the videos came, video stores came with a database of 20,000 people in the local area because it had all their names and all their details. And so she then turned it into a video store that did wood-fired pizzas and packed all the videos down into a little back in the corner and all the people still kept coming there and picking up the video, the wood-fired pizzas in the coffee shop. So she bought the location and the videos and basically killed off the video business, but she got it for practically nothing. And she was able to build a brand new business from the database, the 10 to 30,000 person database at each location. That was a brilliant strategy. 
Wow. I mentioned to you that I interviewed Vin Jiang, who you and I both know, communication yeah. expert and, and entrepreneur, very successful, one young entrepreneur of the year in Australia in his younger days. He was talking about the importance of upskilling and, and he was talking about how when he was a magician, that was his yeah. skill set. And then he was a magician that spoke and he had that skill set. And so the number of people that did that dropped off. And then he was a magician who spoke and then became a communication coach. And that dropped yep. down to like three on the planet from like, you know, hundreds of thousands. And then he said when he dyed his hair blonde, he became the only person <laughs> with, with all of these skill sets. And, and that, that empowerment of, of, of cross-skilling and upskilling or whatever you want to call it can only serve you well. And I think to add to that as well, my own experience, making sure that I don't consume much of the, the standard media with regards to doom and gloom because otherwise you will end up throwing yourself off the Westgate because uh, it's a pretty bleak look out there if you're looking in the wrong places. But there's lots of opportunity. What, what are some opportunities of, at the moment. Yep. Well, what are, what are some of the major opportunities that you can foresee in the next 12, 18 months, Dave? Well, one of the things is that if you can get customers and you can help them with what they want, there's going to be things that will happen. Even in the worst of worst downturns, at the moment, there's things like debt collection. There's going to be things like businesses where um, they all this excess stock that they've got has got to be auctioned and resold off, and it's going to come back with a new value. And this is what we saw back in the 99, 2000. At the moment, what's the price of cars? The price of carpets are, are dropping like a stone, so there'll be a business and opportunities in just turning these things over. So there's some basic stuff. Um, Anywhere that you can add value, there's opportunities. Um, so right now, I don't know whether you've heard, there's this new thing called the internet. They reckon it's catching on. There's still a whole lot of businesses that are not in any way technologically savvy. They know nothing about how to do web marketing, digital marketing, make videos, you know, do anything at all that adds value in that space. Um, one of the hottest things in the immediate downturn of COVID for web people was helping um, wholesalers set up online distribution platforms and stuff. Just even online and retail shops is going gangbusters for people. So there's a whole pile of opportunities there. And then there's things that are coming in the future. Do we have any experts on machine learning or artificial intelligence or, or you know, um, cybersecurity, Bitcoin? You know, no is the answer to that. There's, there's very few and far between. Do you think that, you know, cybersecurity... It's going to be a big topic in the future. Yes. What about artificial intelligence? What about drone pilots? What about, you know, and so I love there was a fabulous story by um, uh, Craig Rispin, who's one of the speaking futurists, and he did a bunch of work with Commonwealth Bank, and he encouraged a whole lot of the guys inside the Commonwealth Bank to go and learn and the new 12 skills for the future. And he gave them a whole lot of these different types of topics. And then the Commonwealth Bank had to reduce their staff but these guys had gone out and got new skills and they kept them because A, they were motivated and B, they'd learned some new skills and they were preparing themselves for a future that was all about, you know, obviously online banking systems and all sorts of interesting stuff. But what you can't just keep on doing is still be a taxi driver in an Uber world. You can't still be a video store in a, in a world that's gone streaming. So the yeah. ability to pivot and learn new skills. Um, one of my favorite ones, you can go down to it. There's a group called, um, oh, well, now you've got it all online. You can do it for free at Udemy and LinkedIn Learning. There's free stuff. You can do SEMrush Academy and learn all about digital marketing. You can do video editing. Half the programs are free. 
um, you just learn the skill and get really, really good. Um, there's a lovely book out called uh, Get So Good They Can't Ignore You. Um, and that's another fabulous one as well. It's exactly the Vin Jang principle. Get really, really, really good at what you do. Yeah. I love that. I love that, Dave. It's uh, Steve Martin's quote, isn't it? Be so mm-hmm. good they can't ignore you or something along those lines. Um, it's it's an exciting period. Like certainly reframing the things that are happening around you and being outwardly optimistic and, and being as grounded and centered as you can is really important in this time. And certainly we know people are struggling with mental health and, you know, doom and gloom, but I think it's important to be a ray of light in an otherwise gloomy room at times. And that that's what I'm going to continue doing for as long as I can while there's breath in my body, you know, and, uh, that's you have you- to be a realist though, which is, we can't just go, you know, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Um, you have to go with, um, here's the opportunities in here. I think it was, some um, Victor Frankl's, um, the meaning, uh, man's meaning of life or something of his book, but it was, literally said the optimists died out because the, the problem was that they got so disappointed so many times. So you can't just be purely optimistic. You actually have to be realistic and you have to find of all the things that are going, my favourite phrase is always, I, when things are doing it really tough, I don't ask people how's things. I go, so what's working for you? And it forces their brain to find the things that are working. And they go, nothing. And you go, okay, well, are you breathing? <laughs> and they go, hey, I'm breathing. And, you know, are you, have you eaten lately? Hey, I've eaten lately. So you've then got to be really, really grateful for what you do have because, you know, most of us in Australia, we're in the top 1% of the top 1% of the people in the wealth of the world. And yet there's still some people unhappy that their plasma screen TV is not big enough. Um, and you just got to put it in perspective. So uh, finding and focusing on what's working um, in tough times, I've done great, had great success with finding personal bests and small wins. And the more you can focus and fan your your success on that, you can get more and more and more of it. It's like finding little flakes of gold means that you're getting closer to the big, big nuggets. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you're right. Certainly being delusional won't help, but I think, um, you know, working really hard on eliminating a lot of negative self-talk and limiting self-beliefs, yeah. you know, I can't do this, I can't get a job because of this X, Y, Z is really yeah, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for anyone younger than probably my age, 40, 39, 40, haven't gone through any major adversity. And, no. you know, like this is our time. This is our time to learn another set of adaptation. And, you know, we might not have the the abundance from China because of what's going on. So it'll force maybe some more local production. And, you know, there's all, there's all good things that will come out of this um, if only you focus on on that, you know. So... Yeah, I'm a big fan, Dave. I'm a big fan of uh, your thought process there. It's really good. Uh, well, it seems to work. Um, there's another guy, um, uh, Chris Helder, who's got the fabulous Useful Beliefs book that says this is a useful belief. He doesn't like positive thinking. He likes useful beliefs. This is this is useful. This will serve you. Just purely positive. It's all good. And I'm, I'm really great. And, you know, it's all wonderful. Or, or for the people who are going, oh, it'll just come back to normal by next week. Yeah, you're probably going to be a bit deluded. It's going to be different. There's going to be a new normal. Um, so there's that game. Um, I've hung out for a long, long time. Back in 2007, I met Scott Pape, the barefoot investor, and he became a very good friend. And so every couple of weeks we have a coffee and that's given me a pretty good financial grounding. And I got involved with him with his books. And so his book, the barefoot investor is sort of the biggest selling book in Australia ever, a couple of million copies. 
And I've used that with lots and lots and lots of young people, my kids, staff, anywhere that I can give them out lots and lots of copies. They're about $20 a book at Big W. And it basically sets people up for life. Spend less than you earn, pay off your credit cards, get your debt sorted out, get your superannuation crumbling along, and then have some backup money. Have a spare $2,000 in your Mojo account. He's got a bunch of little, very, very simple little things. And we've implemented that with lots and lots of staff in the companies that I've been working with, and that's been phenomenal. One of the other things he says is get a side hustle going that says find out how you can add some value and make some money on the side. Find out what you're good at. Can you do something? Can you create something? Can you do a little thing that makes money? And so that's side hustles. And we're about to find out later this year what good side hustles are for some people. And I've seen it already. In the tough times, some people got unemployed and they started to go and find ways to make money, decent ethical ways to make money. Yeah, well, it's interesting, Dave. I, in January of this year, when the bushfires were prolific in Victoria, I needed money. I was in a real bind and I, and I managed to get hold of a bunch of the P2 masks and mm. found myself with a whiteboard with a friend who had really nice handwriting, had written masks for sale. Mm. And I was wearing one down at South Bank, down in Victoria. And I looked like Bane from Batman. And not surprisingly, no one bought a single mask. But then I worked out that I could put them on Facebook Marketplace and then mm. inevitably on, on eBay. And I don't, I don't want to get like roped in with this price gouging. And I sold them for a fair price and they were selling very well and no one was really complaining. So I can only assume that they were priced well. Then the COVID hit and mm. was able to sell more. But then Facebook Marketplace and then eBay forbid the sale of the, yeah. the mask and hand sanitizer, which I'm really conflicted about because I really feel like they've, you know, where do you draw the line with what you stop people selling? It's, you know, it's not drugs. If people are willing to pay for it, I think, you know, you've got to give people the opportunity. So now, thankfully, I've got a friend of mine who runs a post shop and he's been selling them on behalf. Mm-hmm. But how would, you, how would you propose getting around that little challenge? Because I've got a whole heap of masks now that I that are very hard to sell because and the the price of them the cost price went up five hundred percent to give you an idea yes yes so yes, yes. what do you and, and there's a big demand for them people that were going through chemotherapy you know lots of people needed them that now no longer have access to them what are your thoughts on that so one of the things everybody has a business model that says I buy this I add some value and I sell it at that and that's sort of the chain in the old days it was the manufacturer the wholesaler the retailer the distributor all these people and if you didn't add enough value in the chain you got cut out and they go direct I will bypass the wholesaler and I'll buy direct from the supplier or the manufacturer what happens though is that the supply chain is beautifully set up but then occasionally there's usually and there's black swan events and it's usually a governmental change or it's um, a globalization change. So there's these really weird events. We have a tsunami, we have um, you know, a, a storm, a fire, whatever it happens to be, and it completely disrupts things. Or alternatively, my favorite one is always, bizarrely, there's governmental change, or nowadays it's large corporate change. So Facebook or Google says, you can't do that anymore. Um, I don't know, there was a period of time where we had solariums. Do you remember solariums? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You went there to- and you sat under the tanning beds. And all of a sudden, the government says, from the 30th of June, no more tanning beds. Now, 
when you shut down um, industries, they shut down sort of slowly like video stores because there's always someone that will keep on doing video stores. There's always someone that's still going to keep on selling records. And so you see them just wane off and we shut all the, all the record stores really slowly, but they're still going. The ones that get wiped out really, really quickly and have to pivot very, very fast is when there's a government regulation. And sometimes businesses can be created like test and tag and businesses can be decimated like solariums. So in your instance, the new government now is the big corporate players, which is Google and Facebook, and they change the rules. Um, I was doing a lot of work with the SEO for our plastic surgery business, and Google did the medic update and basically wiped out 50% of the traffic on all the medical websites in Australia by just going, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. And everybody lost half their business overnight. So this is where it's worthwhile to have multiple channels multiple income streams and don't put all your eggs in the one basket. So going back to how do you sell your your masks is that you find out who wants them and you find out what the channels are for those people. Now, yes, most people, the easiest channels was eBay and Facebook, but there's still other traditional channels as well. You can sell them in the neighborhood or you go to the biggest users who might need them and who don't have them. Yeah. And that's what you do, which is what you do. You go out through affiliates or alliances um, and other distribution people. Um, the other one would be most people still don't understand the differences between all the different types of masks. So just in educating people about why your masks were better or different, that's a useful thing as well. Yeah. Oh, that's really great, Dave. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, like in, in, in uh, California, I think it might be, you might get a fine if you don't wear a mask or they've, man, they've mandated wearing masks. And if they were to do that here, then that would change the ballpark, you know, like would change the game. So it's um, thankfully I've got a very understanding wholesaler who's become quite a, quite a good friend and with very generous payment terms. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's not, it's not a huge amount, uh, you know, on the grand scheme of things, but it's... Um, as we open up in the next few weeks, you'll see that there'll be a, a demand for masks again. Is the thing. Whereas sitting at home, there wasn't so much, but very much now for restaurants, for um, the big ones, which were retailers and hospitality, 30, 40% of the Australian population is in retail and hospitality. They're the ones that will do it the hardest in the next little while. And all of those ones will need to have proper masks is the deal. Now, I don't know whether your masks are the cheap masks, the good masks, the fantastic masks. There's a market for each one of those, depending on whether it's you or whether you're providing it for other people to use for free. Yeah, no, they're, they're very good quality ones. They um, and the the fascinating thing, like you can't get any more. Like it's very hard to get them, and they because the although they were mainly made in Vietnam, all the material is sourced from China, and so China put a kibosh in all of this stuff. And uh, you know, massive. This was ordered in January and only arrived a couple of weeks ago in Australia. Um, China was cancelling all the, all the exports and then getting everything back for their own medical staff and yep. whatever else so it's a it's a new world it's a new world and we're going to have to say you have to be a lot more self-sufficient like you say dave um i haven't seen yet on i haven't done a website search for those things that you're talking about but even if you just put up a a, a website on your own and you just did um 15 20 blogs as to why the masks and how to wear masks and the benefits of wearing masks and a whole bunch of different articles related to that you'd eventually start building a bunch of people who wanted that and you'll find that they also want a whole bunch of other stuff as well. At the moment now, they'll take steam cleaners, they'd take Perspex um, 
things to, to pull people back, but there'd be a whole suite. It'd be really interesting if there were 20 things that you could sell people that would really, really help them um, either protect themselves, their staff or their customers. It'd be interesting to see what the 20 things would be. There would be a really nifty website. And so, again, this is what I tend to do is I just tend to collect resources like that and go, here's the places. You're selling your masks. But by the way, if you're looking for these other things, and right now we're about to have retail and hospitality, and you go, what's fair and reasonable? Um, I don't know if you've seen that the masks have also gone now, so they're, they're doing beautiful coloured ones. They're doing ones with lips on them and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know whether any of your masks can be printed with a smiley face on them. So you can uh, innovate and you can tweak what you're doing and stuff. Yeah, not not these ones, but like everything's on the on the table, and, and it's so. Um, sell them with a sticker that goes over them. There you go. Look at that little wee pivot, little wee uh, change up on the on the design. The um, the organic. Or, is, you, or you send them, you sell them with a set of stickers that says, "What's my mood today?" You know, smiley face, not smiley face. You remember that? There was <laughs> used to be that little booklet of you know, guess my mood type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, just, just on that, I did a presentation the other day with a guy, one of the surgeons was, um, we were in a meeting and he was wearing a full-on mask looking a bit like, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter. It was really interesting to see, A, we couldn't watch his mouth move and B, it was really hard for him to build some rapport. So I don't know whether he needed a sticker on there that actually was, was the rest of his face, but it was really off-putting to do a business meeting with... Uh, and build rapport with someone who was wearing the full face mask. That's really interesting. You're right. It, it is, it's a whole another ball game because you can't read people's expressions. And is there a market for a clear mask? But yes, if it's clear, yeah, how do you it work? Will it fog up? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Everyone looks like uh, Mortal Kombat characters around South Bank with all their, their bespoke masks. But just onto that comment regarding the 15 to 20 blogs. So that organic SEO, that just gets scooped up by the internet and then, you know, that organic search is just the algorithm that seems to, to suit and people pick up on it when they do. Um, Google, there's a thing in Google that says if you write a better blog than the 10 blogs that are already on that particular question that people have asked for, Google will give you a run in the top five and see whether you're worthy of being there or not. And if you're not worthy, then you get bounced out and you're back at position 100. But Google's testing all the time, every single day, whether your blog is so good that it deserves to be in the top five. And if it is, it'll stay. So your blog just has to be so good that says, what's the best mask that I can use for my restaurant or whatever particular question that they've typed in. And if you've got the solution for that, you know, and some people will just type in, you could collate an article that would be 2,000 words on what are the best things to do to help. Now, depending on who you think are the most likely buyers for your masks and indeed all these other things, if you collated that as a resource, you've set up a little mini shop effectively. Well, why don't we do this as a little bit, a bit of an experiment, Dave? I'll, um, I'll put up a web page and start pumping out some, some well-written articles. I'm in the process of writing my very first book at the moment, so I'm used to a few strokes on the keyboard. I've just punched out 10,000 words. So a uh, quarter of the way there. It's very exciting. There's a bit, so I go and see lots of people's websites and I've been having a passion for this in the last couple of months. And I looked at their blogs, which is where you put the good articles and things. And what was really funny was that some people's blogs were just random thoughts. They just literally vomited some stuff onto it. And it was A, not answering anybody's question and B, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Anybody that actually found their way to that page went, 
ah, there's 200 words of random stuff here that are meaningless. Yeah. Why did I bother? And clearly, uh, then they go, why does no traffic come to my website or why does no traffic come to my blog? And the answer was, you're not adding any value here. You've not saved me any time. You've not given me any new concept. There's nothing in it. So one of the problems that they've had is that they go, I'm not really sure who this was for and I'm not really sure what they wanted and therefore the question that they were typing in, I'm not sure that I answered it. So in order to do this, you have to write, think about who are the three people that are most likely to buy your mask, which is who has bought them in the past, and are there plenty of those people and what else would those people also like to know? Now, given that there's a whole bunch of businesses about to reopen, hospitality, tourism, um, all sorts of other ones, they're going to have the issues that they've discovered in New York that says, how long can you wear a mask for? And does it get really uncomfortable? You know, it gets hot, it gets sweaty, it gets this. Can we solve some of the problems? And particularly your solutions, who would they be for? Would be yeah. So start with the end in mind that says, who's the customer? What's their problem? What's my solution? And then start writing all the articles rather than just go, I write articles and hope that somebody might like this. It's like sort of, you know, I invented what I like, but no one else likes it. So. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm very conscious of, uh, and everything that I write has been very deliberate. I think with that in mind, I, I, there's no point in me. I, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of writing uh, in that in that style unless it's got some meaning behind it, and I like to add as much value as I can what I'm doing. So, but it's really, really great and really helpful advice. And I hope for the listener or the watcher that you are able to uh, to glean some some gold dust because. Dave's been doing this for an awfully long time and, and has been incredibly successful in the process. And and I suppose to start to wrap this up, Dave, I'm very conscious of you, you going and enjoying your Friday night. But I'll ask one more question before we go, if that's okay. Sure. And, and my question is, what would Dave Staunton tell his 16-year-old self? I was a very non-confident 16-year-old, you recall. Um, I was doing what I was told. That was year 10 at school, and I was creaming it in the business stuff, and my passion was business. And they said, the experts said, you, young grasshopper, have to go and study science. And I thought, oh, I'll do what I'm told, and I shouldn't have done what I'm told. I should have done what I wanted to do, which was my passion. And that's what I would have told myself because basically that diverted me off on that for maybe 10 years of my life. Interesting and adding value, much the same as, you know, doing a course always adds some value. I think um, uh, Bill Gates is famous for doing uh, a random course. Was it, no, Steve Jobs did a random course on calligraphy and fonts. That's and right. hence when he did the Macintosh, he was all about the fonts. Um, so Everything is always for some reason, but right now I would have said be confident and do, do what you want to do because um, right now no one's really sure what the future holds and it's changing so rapidly. Go with what you're passionate about. Go where you think it's going to be and don't always take your expert advice from the experts because a lot of people who are, in, you know, are expert at the old ways we used to do things. You know, open a video store and get, get some taxis. <laughs> Kind of like, yeah, maybe not. Dave Storton, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for sharing your wonderful life experience and, and all its honesty and rawness. You've been a great guest of the show. Dave Storton, everybody. Thanks very much. 
it's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.